0: Well, China was the first to experience the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, It is now the first major economy starting to really come out of it on the other side, beginning to open up uh, the economy gradually. The question is, are we seeing it in the economic numbers yet? Nobody better to discuss that than Leland Miller, CEO of the China Beige Book International based in New York City. Leland, thanks so much for joining us once again. Give us a sense of, you know, the lockdown appears to be uh, ending in China Is the economy ramping back up?
2: Well, so many of these terms have lost their meaning, because, you know, ramping back up, recovery. You know, when you have an economy that stopped and was shut down in February, things are going to get better. So you're going to see a recovery to some degree in March and April. The question is, what kind of recovery? Is this a recovery to earlier levels of growth? Is it a recovery to targeted levels of growth? We're not seeing anything like that. And the big story, I think, going forward, China will be able to get its, you know, its bigger companies, its, its higher profile regions up by focused stimulus. How is the rest of the economy going to do, though? How is the private sector? How are SMEs? And this is what our focus really has been over the past month, looking deep into that data. And it's shown that the, the private sector has had a much more difficult job trying to get back up to speed than some of the more high profile uh, and larger SOE type firms.
1: One thing that is, is so wonderful about the work that you do is you look on the ground, you don't necessarily look at the official data and, and sort of extrapolate out what that means in terms of the GDP and the growth rate in China. I'm looking right now, the estimate from uh, economists surveyed by Bloomberg is that China will grow by 1.8% year over year. Uh, this is on a GDP, a real GDP basis um, in 2020. Do you agree with that? Do you think that that's about accurate?
2: Yeah, I think it's a pretty good number. Uh, you know, two months ago, I think this week, two months ago, you know, the three of us had a conversation, and I said China might be at two percent growth, and everyone in the room laughed because it sounded so outlandish at that time. Here we are. Uh, but I think, look, <laughs> here we are, and you know, the, the, you know, China may be on the top end of global growth, and maybe growing at just over zero. So, yeah, I think I think a realistic way to look at this is is, is numbers that are barely in the positive area. Uh, we we'll, we'll, we'll have to see how the U.S. and Europe recover or not in the third quarter, and particularly the fourth quarter, to be able to, to, to put a number on it. But I think numbers that are anything more than just a bit above zero are, are, are pretty optimistic at this point.
0: So Leland, you know, in the US, the economy, we've, you know, it's we become accustomed to recognizing and that's really a consumer driven economy, maybe maybe 70% of the US economies uh, driven by the consumer. So if, if, you know, fiscal stimulus can really address the consumer, you can really kind of get the economy back moving again, give us a sense of how that's May be different in China.
2: Well, I think everybody is is to some degree uh, reliant on on the consumer to play an important part of the of the, the bounce back. I think what you're seeing is sort of a multi levelled strategy by Beijing and everyone watching Beijing to put their own similar strategy. And you got to get manufacturing back up. You got to get the factories, people back in factories producing things. But you need orders for those factories, so you can put, get them up and running but it doesn't mean they're going to do that well. And then when you look at services, okay, so you get services firms reopening, but are people ordering some? are people buying from closed stores? It, the economy can be put up and start running again, and people are showing up for their jobs, but this is going to be a long, long, long period in which people are slowly getting more comfortable and doing more shopping outside and more traveling. So this is just a long, long area, and the consumer is not going to be an active part in this early on uh, in this struggle.
1: I'm struggling also to understand the political backdrop as President Trump and Washington, D.C. more broadly ramps up pressure on China for a uh, lack of of transparency when it comes to the the coronavirus and its spread, its uh, its, its origination. I'm wondering, how is this playing out in China? Do you have a sense of that?
2: Well, you know, I think that there is a lot of rallying around the flag. I mean, certainly domestic surveys are showing that that people are sticking with China in, in a very defensive, protective uh, mode. But what, what what China's been doing has been very, very, very dangerous for its global image. Uh, instead of having come out after uh, you know uh, the coronavirus spread around the globe with with a very very quiet Goodwill approach. It was it was blaming something on Italy, blaming it on the U.S. military, blaming Africans uh, for, for for their part in this. It's it's been a very mismanaged approach, and so you're seeing the, the pushback on China right now with you know the desire for countries around the world to to have an investigation into the origins of coronavirus. I think the one thing that that that, that, that China is actually being helped out by this is they're they're bunkering down. They're in protective mode, and I think I think people are rallying domestically uh, under the idea that, that China is being attacked by the rest of the world. So this may be as as ridiculous as it looks as a strategy. Considering the whole mat- world is getting mad at China right now, it may not be the worst domestic strategy if you get everybody on board and it, it sort of shifts attention away from the party's role in, in 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 messing up preparations early on or hiding the virus and uh, you know shifts attention from that.
0: So, Leland, kind of looking back, just over the last several months, what did China do right in terms of its economy? Was there a big fiscal stimulus on the part of the Chinese central economy?
2: You know, you've actually seen a much smaller stimulus so far uh, than than elsewhere around the globe. You know, the the first thing that was that was uh, was done is is that there was uh, there was an offering to, to to provide credit to firms to just, to just get by. Um, but you saw something much larger in the United States, uh, of course. And so this is, um, you know, it's, it, the expectation is that they're going to move from this prov- provision of credit to keep things stable to some sort of large, heavy infrastructure build out. We have not seen that in our data. You know, our Q2 data is going to be coming out and, you know, in a matter of weeks. And, and so we are going to be watching the property sector very closely. But I think the most interesting thing about China's response so far is that it hasn't been that big particularly in comparison to what's going on in the United States and other countries. So uh, I think that they're waiting to see how things pan out around the globe. And then when they're in build-out mode, you, know, you may see heavier stimulus. Uh, so you're seeing active credit, active credit spigots, but you're not yet seeing big, heavy stimulus. And that may be something we're going to see more of uh, this summer or into the fall.
1: Do you think that that's leading to people overestimating how much the Chinese economy can recover?
2: I think that's absolutely the case. I mean look, you can just watch the headlines every every couple of weeks something, you know, they drop a point or half a point in GDP projections by the end of the year. You know, the important story here is that this is not a China recovery story anymore. You now China is recovering to the extent it can, but in order for it to be up and running at full capacity, you need a recovery around the world. Now, that's not going to happen anytime soon. It may not happen at all in 2020. And so what they're going to need is sort of this rollout where they're, they're providing stability to their businesses. They're avoiding widespread layoffs. They're avoiding widespread bankruptcies. And just keeping things going the best they can while the U.S. gets back online, while Europe gets on back online and how trade hopefully restarts and and you can slowly get things up from there.
1: Leland Miller, thank you so much, as always, for your insights. Leland Miller, chief executive officer of China Beige Book International.
0: Well, we're pretty much uh, through earnings season uh, this quarter, but I'm not sure how much investors have really learned with so many companies pulling back on guidance and so many companies just saying, we really don't know how our business is going to perform for the remainder of the year. Uh, to get a sense of how we might navigate the remainder of 2020 from an investment perspective, we welcome Eddie Perkin, Chief equity investment officer for Eaton Vance. They've got $518 billion uh, under management. They're based in Boston. Eddie, thanks so much for joining us. What are the takeaways that you and your team have gleaned from the earnings reports we've seen over the last couple of weeks?
3: Yeah, well, thank you for having me, first of all. But uh I don't think we've learned a whole lot, to be honest. Uh, most companies have pulled guidance at this point, which is what you would expect. Uh, earnings generally were okay relative to significantly lowered expectations. And I think uh, the future is highly uncertain. Warren Buffett said it over the weekend at the Berkshire Hathaway uh, shareholder meeting. The, the range of outcomes remains very, very wide. And, uh, you know, I think it's probably foolish to think that uh, a CEO or CFO of a company is going to have uh, – any better idea of what's likely to transpire in the economy in the coming months so i think we're uh, we're living in a world of uncertainty and we all need to get used to it
1: All right, Eddie, since you mentioned Warren Buffett, let's go there. A lot of people uh, took his moves in the first quarter, and frankly in April as well, of being a net seller of stocks into the weakness and not making any investments. Just to give you a sense, his cash pile is now a third of his market cap of Berkshire Hathaway with more than $130 billion of cash sitting there. Do you take that, Eddie, as a bearish signal, a sign that he sees further losses ahead that investors should heed?
3: I think you always have to um – pay attention to what Warren Buffett's is up to he's uh, he's obviously a great investor. Uh, he has a war chest. He made some very smart moves in the 2008-2009 period. I think a couple of differences this time around. One is everything rebounded so quickly that even uh, for someone like Buffett who can move very quickly, um, things kind of got away from him very quickly. He said, uh, you know, he's starting to get phone calls from people who needed capital, but uh, as soon as the Fed came in and backstopped everything, it kind of ran away from him and the and the phone call stopped. So I just think it, it the rebound in the markets was so quick that, that he didn't have a, a chance to move. I do find it interesting that he spent an extensive uh, portion of the call making the optimistic case for America and America is resilient, that sort of language. But then his actions were very much opposite to that, where he was selling his airline stocks and uh, uh, not putting money, fresh money to work in the market. So I think, you know, pay attention to his actions perhaps more than his words. So, Eddie, so... Are you one, Are you in that camp that feels like maybe this
0: rebound off of that initial 33% decline in the market, this rebound where we've retraced maybe half of that decline? And granted, it's, it's due to all the liquidity put in the marketplace and the federal stimulus and things like that. But is it too much too fast and do you not trust it?
3: I'm tempted to go there. I think that that feels right. The problem is I, I have a lot of company with that view. I think that's the consensus view in the market right now. And I think people are sort of scratching their heads as to how we were able to recover so quickly when the, you know, the fundamentals of the global economy are still highly uncertain. The way I would try to size it, again, operating within a uh, you know, wide range of uncertainty, is if you look at 2021 estimates, so next year, not 2020, which is kind of a, you know, a lost cause at this point, but 2021, estimates for 2021 earnings are about 20% below what they, um, were, at the, what they were forecast to be uh, just a few months ago. And so that's the hit to next year's earnings. That's probably not all permanent. Um and probably estimates were too high to begin with, but earn, let's say earnings are down you know kind of for several years and, and into the future. 10%. And then you use a higher risk premium, given all the uncertainty. Maybe the right markdown for stocks is about 15%, given what we know today. That's about where the broad market averages are. And so maybe the market's got it about right. I think what's interesting is beneath the surface, you have large cap growth stocks, which are barely down at all, and in some cases are higher. And you have uh, beaten up small caps Deep value stocks, energy, financials that are down 30 to 50%. So I think the interesting calls to make are beneath the surface, not with the market aggregates.
1: All right, so let's go there with the Russell 2000 in particular, because I was looking at the earnings figures so far. We're about halfway through the earnings season, and the Russell 2000 companies are getting beaten up way more than the bigger ones. Not that surprising. Are you going to make a contrarian case and say that it's time to pile in and that that's all been priced in?
3: I wouldn't be as bold as that, but I would say at the margin, that's where investors should be putting money. I think you should be putting money into value stocks at the margin. You should be putting money into small cap stocks at the margin. If you look at, I was looking at a graph the other day on Bloomberg, actually, of the Russell 1000 growth versus the Russell 2000 value. So large growth versus small value over the last three years. And uh, large growth had beaten small value by nearly 90% cumulatively. So you're now at a point where the large cap growth stocks, the, the big tech stocks are at a, uh, you know they're at a sixty percent premium to the market valuation and and small cap values at a fifty percent discount so there 's a very wide range from a valuation perspective that I think i'm as a value investor i'm 'm I'm, I'm highly tempted by, but the timing of that call is difficult, so I would do it very gradually dollar cost average it, and and kind of rebalance into the part of the market that is lagged behind.
1: Eddie, thank you so much for being with us. Eddie Perkin is Chief Equity Investment Officer at Eaton Vance, overseeing more than $500 billion at that firm. Warren Buffett of Berkshire Hathaway certainly set the tone when he came out and said he was a net seller of equity so far this year, exiting his stakes in the major U.S. airlines, saying that it was a changed game for them. Also talking about that cash pile. I mean, this has been really a big question. What will he do with the more than $130 billion in cash? Tara LaChapelle, Bloomberg opinion columnist, covering uh, Berkshire Hathaway for years, and Warren Buffett. Can we first start talking about Uh, his tone. He seemed pretty somber. And he also normally does talk about the dynamism of the US economy. And he he got there. But uh, did there seem like there was a little bit of a lack of conviction, Tara?
4: Yeah, I mean, I could see why today people are saying that, you know, he was a little bit pessimistic. But I think he was also just being realistic. I mean, he did start off the meeting with sort of a beautiful sermon about how America is going to get through this. And I think it's kind of what people needed to hear at that moment. It reminded me a little bit of like when we listened to Governor Cuomo and you kind of leave there, you know, you feel a little bit down about some of the news, what we're hearing, what's happening. But at the same time, there's like that little bit of hope. And that's what I got from Buffett. But he, you know, he isn't buying stocks. He isn't doing deals. And that does say a lot about what he thinks about this moment right now. I think a big piece of that is that the Fed has taken extraordinary actions to kind of prop up the markets, and that has eliminated some of that opportunity that you would normally expect Buffett to seize in a moment like this.
0: So, Tara, is there, I know you talk to a lot of Buffett watchers, and, uh, you know, is there a sector of the economy? Is there an industry that they would like to see him allocate some real capital? We're talking tens of billions of dollars, whether it's financials or consumer or energy?
4: I I think it depends who you ask. You know, Everyone I've talked to has had a different opinion on that. And I think maybe the only consensus is that they want to see Buffett spend that cash. And he kind of signaled that he's not really sure where to spend it right now, that even though he's still you know, very much confident in America's future, you know, he's America's biggest cheerleader, that he thinks that this pandemic is going to change consumer behavior. And because of that, it's having him rethink what he thinks about some of these specific industries long term, like the airline industry, where he seemed to be all in and all of a sudden he has completely exited.
1: I'm struggling with the idea of of the Fed backstop that he talked about. And I guess what I'm struggling with is the idea the Fed has propped up valuations of companies that might have otherwise been left for dead and forced to reach out to a Warren Buffett, uh, where it would enable him to offer terms that would be beneficial to him and probably worse for these companies. What I'm struggling to understand is, is Warren Buffett's reluctance to lend to these companies a statement about their lack of viability, or is it a statement of just a lack of profitability with these loans that previously uh, he would have enjoyed, say, in the 2008-2009 period? It's a difference.
4: Yeah, it's a good question, and and it's hard to know his thinking, but my feeling coming out of that, that meeting and what he was saying was more the latter, that they're willing to do anything if the terms are right. You know, if they look at a business and they think that it's going to be around for a long time, even though it's going through a difficult period now that they're, they want to be all in on it, but it needs to be at a price that works for him. And he's very, very picky about that. You know, as the market went through this, you know, period of a bunch of mega mergers and all these different companies making deals, Buffett sat on the sidelines because he said, even though there's a lot out there, we would like to buy and not let these other companies get a hold of, we are not willing to pay certain valuations. And, I guess right now it's a little bit different than the financial crisis where he kind of had his, um, you know, pickings. And right now he's saying, yeah, it looks like things are beaten down, but it was really temporary and nowhere near as deep as it was in 2008.
0: Well, some news uh, came out this morning in the retail space. J. Crew filed for bankruptcy Felled by uh, the pandemic, as well as a heavy debt load incurred from a previous uh, leverage buyout. The question, I think, for mo- many investors is simply, is this just the first domino to fall in the beleaguered retail space? Uh, to get a sense of where retail is going and how it's dealing with this pandemic, we welcome Poonam Goyle, Senior U.S. Retail Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Poonam, thanks so much for joining us here. I guess this J.Crew news just kind of uh, crystallizes for a lot of investors that, gee, The retail space has really been under a lot of stress over the past decade or so as more and more people shop online. Now you layer on top of that the pandemic, will that be just too much for a lot of these retailers to bear? How do you you kind of view kind of the developments in the retail space?
5: Sure. Thanks, Paul. So I I think the question here really is, you know, the retail space, as you said, has been under turmoil for the last decade. And um, what we're seeing now with the pandemic is retailers that were highly leveraged, that had a lot of debt, are finding it hard to see a path to recovery given the uncertainty that we face today. So I think what this just does is it, it accelerates essentially the fallout of retailers that do have a lot of debt coming due in a short period of time. So within the next 12 to 24 months, they really need to either see a path to be able to fulfill those debt obligations or seek some sort of protection such as, you know, Chapter 11 or bankruptcy.
1: Just to, to look at some numbers that came out from Fitch ratings today. So J. Crew's bankruptcy pushes the 12-month trailing default rate for loan uh for loans in the retail space to 9% from 7% at the end of April. And they predict that this default rate will reach 19% by year end. Neiman Marcus and JC Punny up next with expected insolvencies. I'm just wondering, Poonam, are they gonna come out of bankruptcy? I mean, J. Crew is actually would be staying open if it were open, uh, but it's not open. Um, it's a Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Are we going to continue to see these names or is this the end of them?
5: I think you'll still see some of these names. For J- J. Crew, you know, I read in the release that they were talking about keeping Madewell and J.Crew stores open once they can reopen for business. If you look back just at J. Crew, you know, they've really suffered from product quality issues from just being off-par in terms of fashion in the last decade, or I'd say in the last few years, really. But in the third quarter, when they did report their last quarter, their sales at Madewell Cleanser sales were up 10%, and Crew sales namesake, were flat, and they did start to show some improvement. So the brand still has some equity. It's just with the debt that they have in place, it was hard for them to overcome that and really regrow the business. Um, when you talk about someone like a GC Penny, you know, the question is a lot bigger then because it's a department store. Are department stores still relevant? You know, I get that question all the time. Um, do they need to have the 800 plus stores that they have? So I think there's a lot more consolidation happening in that space than there is in a brand that, you know, can relate and reconnect back with the customer.
0: So is the... Traditional uh, retail mall, the enclosed mall. I'm thinking, is that really going to be at risk here? Um, and I, I know in the past it's, there's been pressure on these malls, but it seems like it might even be more enhanced now post-pandemic.
5: Absolutely, with more than a thousand um, enclosed malls, and with really you know less than half of them being considered as centers that anyone would want to be in A B plus centers as we call them. I, I think this would accelerate. So. Um, the close out of these malls are really these malls morphing into other types of destinations. We've heard from the Gap and other retailers that as they look at the stores that they've closed, um, you know, many of them may not reopen ever again. So as that starts to happen more broadly across the board at certain centers, you can argue that maybe these centers don't even reopen again in the Poonam same form.
1: Putum Goyal, thank you so much for being with us. Punam Goyal, Senior U.S. Retail Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence.